Once again, a reminder to use this as an opportunity to practice listening. See if staying in touch with the breath in a very light way enables you to listen. When you get home, try and experiment. Listen to some of your favorite music and see if you can hear it as pure sound. Use the breath to help you. What the breath does, it helps cut down unnecessary thinking. So that when you listen to the music as pure sound, there's less of the associations that come along with the music. There may be pleasant ones, but it brings you closer, more intimate uh, contact with the music itself. The same with seeing, as has been mentioned. Just a few days before coming up here, walking along Broadway in Cambridge, which is a pretty urban street, I heard a very nice bird sound, bird chirping. And uh, turned to look at it and it didn't fly away. So I just stayed there and just kept watching it as it chirped, staying in touch with the breathing and the mind became quieter, less thought. And every time the bird chirped, I could see, what do you call on a cold day when, you know, you can see the breath? What does that call? Anyone? You know what I mean? It's like vapor, okay. And so the bird was going chirp, chirp, and each time it chirped, I saw vapor come out of its mouth. And I had never seen that before. Uh, It just made my day. Once we stop thinking so much, we start seeing certain things that we, that were in a sense are covered over, kept from us by this filter of uh, incessant thought and images and so forth. Let's. Uh, pick up from where we left off with Woody Allen. <laughs> Great Dharma master. He is in an inverted way. In other words, don't do anything that he's doing and you'll be okay. <laughs> it's not that he's afraid of death just that he doesn't want to be there when it happens. And in Dharma practice, it is quite different. Uh, The Buddha gave great importance to taking up death as a specific contemplation and early in life. Not just for us old timers, it's for young people to take up this contemplation of death Uh, in our society up until recently people didn't do that and then it would come all at once. Uh, People have such a hard time when they are, whether older or not, but unprepared for dying. And then then it's uh, so very difficult. And so for us, we start now and then perhaps it won't be as difficult when the time comes. Um, What I'd like to do tonight is uh, just a few introductory remarks on the use of death awareness in in Buddhist practice. And then, uh, as much as time allows, go through an outline uh, that I've drawn up. And uh, you can all have copies before you go home to refresh your memory. 
um, of a specific, specific set of contemplations, all of which um, are very helpful uh, for our practice and our life. Are they the same or different? And they all use death in one way or another. The first experience that I had uh, in my own practice intentionally was with a teacher I studied with some years ago. Wasn't the Buddhist teacher. Uh, uh, Indian style of teaching, Raja Yoga, uh, the recognition that uh, acknowledging death is important is not a monopoly of the Buddhists. All the great traditions know that. The modern world seems to uh, be unique in wanting to almost deny it. And we were practicing together. He was uh, doing some uh, pretty intense teaching. This was in Mexico. And it was all, you know, wonderful meditation and certain uh, yoga postures and breathing and uh, some study of text. And it was beautiful in Mexico. And uh, I was beginning to learn meditation. And one day uh, he came very excitedly into this uh, cabin that we shared. And he was really excited. And he said, stop meditating quickly. Get dressed. Let's go. We have a chance. I said, wow, what's happening? He was really thrilled. He said, there's a corpse that's available for us to work with. <laughs> I'm serious. And I was a little bit thrown. He said, uh, uh, one of the workmen uh, got drunk and fell into the um, bay and drowned, and uh, people haven't seen him for about two weeks, and his body just washed up on the beach. And none of the Mexicans want to go near him because I couldn't fully understand different religion or from a different town. And so they asked us as outsiders, would we be willing to watch over him through the night until his relatives came from Mexico City? And he was in a big box and with ice, and a bunch of people carried him and put him in a, like a storefront. And there we were. We sat there. No one else wanted to be with him for some reason. They were really frightened of him. And my teacher uh, started pointing out things. First of all, he was uh, bloated, uh, bluish, many of the things that happened to a corpse. Uh, there was, uh, the ice contained it a bit, but there was a foul smell from the decomposition. And the teacher kept pointing out, you see, look at that carefully. That's us. You know, we're not exempt from, the, from this law. It, we're subject to the same lawfulness. And whenever he'd see me be on the verge of like nausea or <laughs> some kind of evasion, he would just bring me back to it. What are you feeling right now? You know, of course, fear, dread, just wanted to be anywhere but there. And he was very, very helpful in terms of uh, there was large periods of silence and periodically things being pointed out and always getting me to come back to myself and to experience what I was reacting to. Uh, By the middle of the night, that all passed. And towards the end of that experience and certainly after it, there was a, a certain lightness and a feeling of being more real. Something went on in that moment where after it was over, I just felt a little bit more, a teeny bit more real for having been close to a, a dead body and observed it carefully and observed my own reaction to it. And since then, I've worked with Buddhist teachers uh, doing some systematic meditations. And I'll mention a few of them that are done We're going to do one. We won't be doing some of these others. There's just so much we can do. Why contemplate death? Why, uh, when we think of meditation, we think of so many joyful things, metta and the breath and 
compassion and all kinds of lovely things that we can contemplate. One reason is if there is fear, and I would say it's a rare person who doesn't have fear of death. If there is fear, then the attempt to flush out that fear, just as a retreat, isn't it, to come here, isn't that an invitation to flush out all the stuff, a lot of stuff anyway that's in you? It's an invitation for trouble, so you can't complain once you get here. <laughs> you asked for it. Day in and day out, just silent, sitting and walking. What do you think is going to come up? <laughs> Whatever's inside. Put in peanuts, you get peanut butter, not cashew butter. So one is that, that is to, is to come to terms with our, with our fear. Uh, obviously very helpful. But another, and that's why it's important to understand uh, uh, Maranasati, which is death awareness practice, in the context of Dharma practice as a totality. If you just tear it out of context, context it doesn't make much sense and can even be destructive. When we uh, contemplate death, we contemplate our own death, in addition to coming to terms with the fear that comes up, it also can help put our life in perspective. It can help us get our priorities straight as to what is really important. How are we spending our life? Just what do we do with each day? Now, obviously, from the point of view of practitioners, uh, what we're supposed to be brought back to is the preeminent importance of practice. We're going to be, uh, just in a, in a very briefly, go through this outline of different contemplations. There are nine of them. And let's say if somebody wandered in from the outside, let's say some traveler got lost and just came in looking for directions and they happened to pause here and start to hear some of the things that I'm going to say without any context without any sangha, no precepts, no teachings of the Buddha, no sense of where meditation leads, no sense of enlightenment, no sense of the possibility of other lives or continuity after the death of this body. And they heard it. I have a hunch that they, they would not head right for the cushion to meditate. <laughs> In other words, they, they, got, they might say, what that guy is saying is true. You know, we don't know when we're going to die, but we know it's definite. And he'd probably get the first plane to Las Vegas or to Acapulco, you know, to just have sex and uh, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> You're right. I haven't been having enough fun. I don't know when I'm going to die. I better just, you know, get it done now. I don't think that what would come to mind would be to do more retreats, to sit each day, to develop a practice and all of that. Rather doubt it. So understand that what you'll be hearing it comes out of a context with certain... The context itself has priorities. The main one to understand is, is that there is some reason to do inner work. A real, a very important reason to do inner work. In the Buddhist teachings uh, on death, it's very important also to understand. Finally, the most important thing in the Buddhist teaching is not the death of the physical body even learning how to do this, how to die correctly. Uh, it's summed up in a couple of ways. One, uh, a Zen koan, which asks, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? That's the big question. Who dies? There's no question that the body dies, but what's implied is there's something else. The physical body definitely dies. But who is it that's dragging this corpse around? In other words, it's already a corpse right now. No matter how many oils you rub in, creams, and you know, all the rest of it. <laughs> Me too. Shampoos and all the new things that are coming out, staggering. <laughs> to care for this body, you know. Another way in which it's been put 
is that the, the, the whole purpose of practice is to undergo the great death. The great death is not the death of the physical body. The great death is the death of this attachment to me or mine, this uh, tendency to cherish self, the egomaniac that we all are. That's the real death. That's the important death. But in the meantime, we have this body that we're dragging around. A third uh, way of putting it, very, very beautiful, if I can get it straight. If we can die, it's saying the same thing. If we can die before we die, then when we die, we don't die. That person who was hearing it now has ran back to his car. <laughs> He's driving away from here as fast as he can. If we can die before we die, if we can die to the ego before the physical body dies, then when we die, when the physical body dies, we don't die. All this uh, talk and the readings and the teachings that you've heard about nirvana or the unconditioned, as you know, it's sometimes called the deathless or the unborn. One teacher I had some years ago and I was trying to get a sense of how do you know if you're progressing in this work? And he gave me an incredibly difficult one, which, uh, you know, it's still with me. And he just looked at me and he said... Um, do you have absolute confidence in your indestructibility yet? I said, no. I said, get back to the cushion. Okay. And uh, these formal meditations uh, that I'm going to, we'll, we'll uh, touch upon a few tonight are wonderful and helpful. They're not done by all Buddhist practitioners. Some people find them useful, some don't. Even in Thailand, when I talked to the monks, some of the monks had done it. They had gone to charnel grounds, they had reflected on dead bodies, and some hadn't. For some it's beneficial, for some it isn't. It's very much an... It's one more possible contemplation that may or may not be helpful for you. It's very much an individual matter. Um, and if you didn't do any of the formal meditations, just our little old Vipassana practice, simple as it is. Remember that one? Being mindful of whatever happens from moment to moment. Well, fear of death comes up for us sometimes. It's not necessarily on demand. It comes up when, when it comes up. And the practice is to pay attention to that fear to begin to go into uh, what is it all about? What is this fear of death? One thing that you may find if you look at it carefully is first of all, when we talk about fear of death, it isn't really fear of death. It's fear of the idea of death. Fear of death is when you're dying. You know, there it is. Well, it's time to check out and you're dying and you're afraid. That would be fear of death. But what we call fear of death is the idea of death that we're frightened of. It's the end of the me and mine. And there's a projection, uh, a creation of an, of an image and a, a sense of the extinction of that, that that image will no longer be, that I, as I think of myself, will no longer be. And then there's whatever there is, perhaps fear. And since uh, death is the, the big letting go, any practice, any aspect of our practice that deals with impermanence and letting go, of course, is helpful. Krishnamurti used to uh, constantly remind people uh, that uh, die now, die right now while you're alive die to the attachments that we have from moment to moment, die to your possessions, die to your cherished images of yourself. Now is the time to die. So it's a dying from moment to moment. Uh, that is tremendously helpful. Okay. 
a few of the techniques that uh, are used, and then you can get some sense, and then we'll go into uh, briefly what we'll start to do tomorrow. It may take more, it may take a little bit more, a few more sessions or one more. There's one that uh, I practice with a, a Thai forest teacher. Um, and in, in these, it's very important to have some samadhi to begin with. It wouldn't be make too much sense to do it if you had no calm or concentration. And this was after a month of doing other things, the last few days of a month retreat. Um, and a, a fair amount of that was a, doing contemplations on the different parts of the body. And then he said... Uh, pick a part of the body that you can visualize very easily. And for me, it's always been bones since childhood, skeletons and bones. Uh, It's not morbid. I've always been intrigued by them. In many Buddhist monasteries, uh, in uh, the meditation hall at Ajahn Buddha Dasa's, who some of you have been reading his books, you'll see uh, hanging from the ceiling the skeleton of an adult male, the skeleton of an adult female, and the skeleton of a child. So it's asking us to take this into account now. And what he encouraged me to do was to take whatever the organ, or in this case I didn't pick an organ, I picked the bones, and to visualize it, which was very easy, and then to begin to understand the different stages of decomposition that that particular organ, or in this case the bones, would go through over a period of time. In this case, eventually just be dust. Finally, the winds would come and just blow the dust of the bones away. Be nothing left. And then he'd say, okay, now reverse it and put it back together again. And then imaginatively, then putting it back together again into a healthy set of bones was helpful, very helpful. There's a famous uh, contemplation, which is the ninth contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutra. The uh, nine stages of decomposition of a corpse. We're not going to do that one. Okay. And what you do is uh, somewhat what I just described. You visualize it. Uh, assuming you have strong samadhi and a whole host of other factors that make it something that's positive to do this, like the support of a sangha, like understanding uh, where this all leads, some depth in the meditation experience, so that there's uh, more than blind faith. And you visualize these and stay with it as long as you can and begin to, as you you visualize, you realize, after you accomplish a successful visualization of it, you then reflect back, uh, I am subject to this as well. I'm not exempt from this. In other words, you see that, that this will be me someday too. Okay. The one is the corpse is bloated, blue and festering. That's, I guess that's the first stage. That's what I saw that day in Mexico. Uh, I don't know that I have to go... Through. Well, the corpse is crawling with insects and worms. Crows, hawks, vultures, and wolves are tearing it apart to eat. It keeps going like that. Till the, <laughs> the last one. The bones have decomposed, decomposed, and only a pile of dust is left. Um, um, let's move on to the... Uh, this, the contemplations that I would suggest that we do. And I'm going to briefly go through, start, if I can finish, I will tonight. And then tomorrow, in the sitting after breakfast, we'll do one. And as I mentioned, I'll, uh, I will get, I, I'll try to get a copy to all of you. So that it, as a reminder, for those of you who would like to do more of this. Okay, the first one is, uh, it's on the, you take a theme. In this one, the theme is the inevitability of death. Okay. And the reflection, uh, it, we come at it in a few ways. One is, 
everyone has to die. Now, I think you're going to enjoy certain aspects of this kind of contemplation. For many of you, it might be an incredible relief. Because now, when we do this tomorrow, you'll be encouraged to think. Now it's not just straight Vipassana perception, all that's thinking. Now you can really play with thought, but we're going to be using thought in a, uh, a very creative way, each one in their own way. You'll have full license to use thinking, uh, but to move you in a, dire- a dharmic direction. There'll be more on this as we go on. So, for example, even the thought, everyone has to die. Hmm. Everyone has to die. Death is certain. That could be another one. Some of it is a bit like working with a koan, for those of you who have been in Zen. That is, the point is to arouse the feeling or intuition of, let's say in this case, inevitability of death. If the mind is concentrated, if the samadhi is strong, uh, the what you arouse can, can have much more depth, uh, can be much more, you have much more creativity at your disposal when the mind is calm and clear, fresh, supple. And so then, let's say you contemplate it in a number of ways, and I'll mention a few of the ways in which it can be done, and you'll make up your own. So that let's say you do these, uh, and then you arouse the feeling that corresponds to this fact that uh, we, everyone must die. Everyone. And that feeling comes up. The samadhi will help you arouse it. And then once it's aroused, you join it with samadhi. That becomes your meditation object. That is, you mix in the aroused feeling that you've generated, like of inevitability of death. And now you, you concentrate on that which you've just aroused. And you mix in your capacity to attend to that so that it deepens, so that it sinks deeper into the heart. So the heart begins to get, because we all know that it's inevitable right now, but that isn't transforming us enough. It's not radical. It's not, it doesn't have the power to go against delusion that will be here forever. Okay, how could you do that? Let me give you a few ways of doing it. Um, I've done this, and it can be uh, quite powerful, and it led to an independent method for myself, which was useful for a while, and then it was not useful. One way to um, arouse this, this sense of the inevitability of death, that is, everyone who is ever born must die is to reflect on the, the thought. And so some useful thinking, you can like carry on a conversation with yourself. You can do certain kinds of free association and um, playing with images and thoughts. Do you know how many people have been alive already and are now dead? We can't even count that high. But to make it more vivid, uh, the way in which it's done traditionally, is you, and to bring it up to date now to our times, you might pick people, let, let's say, famous athletes who seemed indestructible. Just picture them in the prime of their life, carrying out their sport, let's say, uh, famous uh, track stars or boxers or basketball players or whatever, uh, runners who just, just understand that these seemingly invincible uh, human beings, beautiful specimens of physical strength and stamina, Ones that are dead, pick them up and just understand, he's dead, that person's dead. Famous people, John F. Kennedy or famous presidents, wealthy people, famous actors and actresses, people who just seem so real, so vivid, they could never die and understand they're dead. Picture them in full bloom, fully alive, and then understand that, that they have passed away that even they must go. Great philosophers, the Buddha, Jesus, dead. The Buddha's dead, you know. Even the Buddha has to die. Interesting. 
And so you begin to, uh, that opens up something in you. It brings something up in you. And once it does, then you join that something, if it's aroused, with your uh, capacity to attend. Now, sometimes it only lasts maybe a few seconds, 30 or 40 seconds or, or shorter. Then what you can do is go back to this more creative phase where you reflect on the thought. Those of you who have done some Zen with koan work, it's like, let's say you have a koan. At a certain point, it's not the words of the koan. It's the sense of it that arouses something in you and then you enter into that. You become one with that. And so, in this case, what we would become one with would be that sense that everyone must die. Amazing. Everyone. Everyone? Yeah. In, let's say, 150 years from now, probably, everyone alive on this planet will, will be dead. Just think of the entire planet, so populated with billions of people. Each and every one of them who's alive right today will be dead. Totally gone, and if, you know, unless the planet itself is gone, there'll be a whole bunch of new people going through their adolescence and, you know, falling in love and falling out of love and love and hating and being resentful and discovering meditation and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone here today will be gone, all of us. We'll all be gone, you know, all of us sweet people, you know, we're so gentle and kind and practicing so hard. (laughs) Bye-bye. And you have room for creativity. I'm just kind of getting you started. And my own feeling is it's just uh, giving you a sense of some possibilities. And probably your best work will be done at home if you want to do this. For me, uh, when when I started on this one, it led to something unexpectedly that was quite fruitful. One night, I I like old films. (laughs) One other film fanatic here, at least one that I know. And uh, there was one channel that used to play old, late at night, they would would play all old films, you know, from the late 30s, uh, 40s. And one night, I was watching this film, and I realized that everyone in the film was dead. (laughs) The entire cast was dead. And I knew some of the other, the directors were dead, the, the, the person who was, uh, composed the music was dead. Uh, and I looked at it, you know, it was just, uh, it was Clark Gable was in it, he was dead. And I've forgotten the, uh, the woman who, okay, you can understand. And what you see, is, it was quite interesting, for me it worked, because I had already been through this. And what I saw was, they're in the prime of their life. You know, Clark Gable is, you know, running around and virile and sensual and, you know, everyone is doing their thing. And you're looking at him, dead, you know, sort of, <laughs> he's dead, she's dead, the extras are dead, you know, the, the su- supporting cast are dead, people who got Academy Awards are dead, who didn't get Academy Awards are dead, people who sold popcorn are dead. It's all dead. Everyone is dead. Gone. And it was funny, but it also was, it was also a lesson. You know, it was sort of uh, an amazing use of the, of the media because you could see people right in front of you in the prime of their life. Probably couldn't have occurred to them that they'd ever be dead. So you see that it's those kind, you have those kind of possibilities. It's a great leveler. When you start reflecting, you begin to see that no matter who the person is, it's very humbling. No matter how much you're educate, how much education you've had, no matter what your job is, no matter what your income is, it doesn't care. Just a great leveler. Everyone must die, um, without exception. The second, which is an, another attempt to to get at this. Oops. Our lifespan is decreasing continuously. Pretty obvious, right? That is, uh, from moment to moment, 
time is running out. In some of the ancient teachings, they talk about when you're born, you're, in a sense, issued a certain number of breaths and you live as long as those breaths hold out. And then when it becomes time to die, uh, there comes a, a time when on, you breathe in and then you breathe out and then you don't breathe in again. That's called death. And it's a sense, this one, you can get a sense of time running out. Um, sometimes examples of, uh, can be used of well, you can do it even now. You can, at your own leisure, get a sense of the, the flowing quality of time right now. It's all happening. It's just all happening. But we're not attuned to that. If we were falling out of an airplane without a parachute, we would be. We would know that uh, at a certain point we would hit the ground and probably be dead. But we're not paying attention to that. We know that we're going to die. Let's say we do. But it seems as if it's off in the future sometime. And so that's another kind of reflection that contributes to it. You will have this outline, so the third, I don't know if you want it, but you'll have it. <laughs> no, I think you, the, I wouldn't be uh, introducing this if I didn't feel that at least for some of you, it would really be helpful. It's not, a, it's not, finally, it's not about anything morbid. Well, you'll see. Here's the third one. Oh, no, the second one. Okay, everyone has to die. Our lifespan is decreasing continuously. The third one, the amount of time spent during our life to develop the mind is very small. Now we begin to see, it's beginning to assume a spiritual or a dharmic, uh, it's starting to make sense from a dharmic point of view. What that's attempting to say, and here, uh, obviously built into it, are the uh, teachings of, of the Buddha, which if you don't subscribe to, this may not make as much sense as if you do subscribe to it. What it's pointing out is that um, in the Buddhist teaching, although it's true that the physical body dies, at the time of death, there is a, a, a mental continuum continue, a mental continuum goes on. Or it's, we do leave behind our body, we leave behind all of our possessions, the people who've been involved in our life, all of our book collection, our artwork, our great dishes, all of it is gone. <laughs> but what we do take with us, this may not surprise you, is who we are. Or it's, and that is the work we're doing on ourselves. That that goes, that continues. So that, uh, let me put it to you this way. We're supposed to be, Americans are supposed to be very sharp business people. From the point of view of Dharma, we're terrible business people because we're putting in an enormous amount of time and effort and energy to accumulate all kinds of things which will soon be in thrift shops or our children will have them or people we don't even know will have them or they'll just be in the ground. We're putting an enormous amount of time in accumulating all of this stuff. And something that, so it's a bad investment, really. And something that has continuity, namely our character, uh, who we are, the depths of the different things that we learn as we go, as we practice. Not only knowledge, but qualities that we develop of wisdom, of compassion. We're not spending much time on that even though that has a future. We don't have a future in this sense. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So it's very bad business. So this one is, is, is trying to alert us to the fact that death is inevitable. It affects everyone. No one gets out of this one alive. But there is a continuity, and we're, we're not taking care of that. Now, here's where the picture brightens up a bit. And it's important that you see this in a balanced way. It's not just to work on our fear that we contemplate our death. It's to work on how precious life is. See, if this is, when this practice, when you take on this practice, what comes out of it when it uh, happens is an enhanced appreciation for how precious life is. The fact that all of us are definitely going to be dead, all of us, 
can also lead us to, to value each other tremendously while we have each, one another, while we're in each other's presence. It's not uh, an attempt to, to fall into despair because the teachings are not teachings of despair. The teachings are giving us tangible, practical, actual things that we can do to improve the quality of our life. The teachings are saying that each one of us is a Buddha, that we all have enormous potential, but it's in the heart. It's not out there, and it's not in someone else. And that potential can be tapped. We can all flower and bloom, and that's why we practice. So it's saying, hey, look at how you're spending your time. Your physical body is going to die. There's no question about that. You're not spending very much time on inner development, but that has, some, that has continuity. Why not change those priorities a little bit, or at least take a look at how you're living your life and begin to uh, wake up? And so it's life enhancing. And of course, because this is from the point of view of practice, it's designed to intensify our commitment to the practice. Whatever your level is now, and all of us have quite a bit to be here, to go through what we're all going through. It can, it can become even more refined and subtle. I, you know, I've been practicing for a while, and I'm always amazed at how more, how the intensity, the commitment, the uh, understanding of why it is that I'm practicing grows with practice. Not as an idea, but from actual experience. Let's continue and um, I might go into the walking a little bit. So this first uh, set of contemplations, everyone has to die, our lifespan is decreasing continuously, and the amount of time spent during our life to develop the mind is very small. These contribute to more of a determination to live wisely. Then there's another set of contemplations, all which have to do with the uncertainty of the time of death. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail of these because I think they'll be pretty clear to you, very obvious. Human life expectancy is uncertain. This is the reflection. Human life expectancy is uncertain. Uh, How could you make that vivid? with people that you've known from history, your actual life, people can die at any time. We know we're going to die. We don't know when. Some beings die in the womb. Some beings die in infancy. Some beings die in adolescence. Many die later on. Certainly, eventually, all of us die in old age. Beginning to to recognize that, that... um, Life is uncertain. We don't know how long we have to be here. Again, this can reinforce the sense of practicing now. Do the inner work now. Yeah, I think, well, after I uh, make another twenty-five or $50,000, then I think I'm going to do that retreat that I've always wanted to do. Do it now. Now, this is what this is saying. Of course, it's up to each one of us to weigh everything and put it in total. We have families, we have responsibilities and so forth. Human life is uncertain. You know, now and then, almost every day, you hear on the news where kinds of death were just amazing. Here's the next one. There are many causes of death. Endless, right? You know, Hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, floods, war, terrorists. Uh, We haven't even gotten to disease or old age yet. And very often, every day, I don't know how we could estimate the number, but I'm sure there's a fair number of people who die uh, 
never would have thought that today was the day that they were going to die. You know, these strange deaths of people who are innocently shot down, you know, walking across the street or uh, anything, really. And we don't tend to, when we wake up, think that today's a good day to die or I might die today. I better really uh, love those people in my life. I better really be sensitive to everything I do, to myself, to everything that's going on that makes up life for me, my world. It just seems obvious, yeah, I'm going to die, but sort of the delusion, the fog that we're in, is that it's way off in the future sometime, especially if we're young. Those of us you know, who have turned certain corners, we have a little bit better sense of it, but even us need to be reminded. You know, I'm, uh, I use lots of... Uh, I've, since uh, adolescence, I've been what is now called a health faddist, that long before Buddhism... I was into uh, blackstrap molasses and wheat germ and yogurt when that's what was considered the health food, natural foods movement. And there were no TV on the radio. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Carlton Fredericks would talk about how these wonder foods of yogurt, blackstrap molasses, and wheat germ. And I made my mother get them. I guess I wanted to live forever even then. And then later on, of course, I, I've learned much more about herbalism and massage and Feldenkrais. And, you know, it's Alexander Method and all kinds of herbs and vitamins. And, uh, you know, it's just endless now, right? And I use them. And I keep in shape. I do, do yoga and I do some breathing and I, uh, I fast and I'm vegetarian for the most part. And uh, I do cleansings, you know, like with uh, lemonade and... and uh, <laughs> Maple syrup and <laughs> I do, I do. Enemas, I do enemas. <laughs> Coffee enemas, very good for the liver. And you know what? I could die in a second anyway. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm not saying that I shouldn't do it or you shouldn't do it. Or, you know, if you need to lose some weight, you know, do it or stop smoking. I'm not saying, but it's, un, it's unknown. It's an uncertainty. We have no idea. It's completely out of our hands. We don't live as if that's so, though. Okay, so there are many causes of death. Also, the human body is so fragile. This is the next one. We're into the sixth. We wound so easily. We break so easily. In a matter of moments, our status in terms of health can change. Um, we know that, but we don't, in reflecting on it, it's still another way to come to the same place of appreciating what life we have, all of us, at whatever age, at whatever physical condition we're in. It's to help us to wake up. Okay, then we move uh, to the last seven, eight, and nine. And the, the first had to do with inevitability of death. The second, the uncertainty of time of death and, of course, place. The next one, the fact that only insight into Dharma can help us at the time of death. Of course, this is what uniquely makes what we're doing so relevant and makes this contemplation at least potentially useful for some of us. The way you would do this, and I've done it, it's quite rich is you can, it's a kind of like psychodrama. You know, you just lie down and pretend that you're dying. Pretend that you have just, you've been told, okay, you don't, you don't have much time. And try to get a sense of what that might be like. You're, you're lying down. Remember, it's always best to do these things having uh, done some breath awareness first or whatever, or metta, whatever it is to get very calm and concentrated. You're lying down and then you try to through visualization, get a sense of, as honestly as you can, what it might be like in those last moments. And here are some of the reflections that have been used traditionally to help us do that. Our possessions and enjoyments cannot help. At this point, uh, if you were, let's say, the things that make us feel better when, we, when we're off, let's say we're, we're down or we're, we feel sick, we have so many different... Uh, books to read and uh, TV programs to watch and uh, our favorite this or that. And here we realize that none of our possessions can help us. They have nothing to offer us anymore. 
no matter how cherished, no matter how ancient, no matter how antique, no matter how much pleasure you've gotten from it. A book of your favorite poetry, great artwork, statue of the Buddha. Not much, anyway. So our possessions and enjoyments can't help. It starts to get even deeper. Our loved ones cannot help. The people who love us, this is assuming there are people who love us. Many people die without people who love them around them. That even these people who wish the best for us, they will have to let go of us and we will have to let go of them. And to feel our way into that. Of course, the attachment to possessions is nothing compared to this where we have to say goodbye to people uh, who we've known all our life. Our own body cannot help. This body that we've... uh, been so intimate with, that we've taken such good care of, in endless ways, some of which have been mentioned already. Uh, We've groomed it, we've dressed it, we've uh, looked at it, we've... uh, It's so close to us, we're with it all the time. We sleep with it, we bathe it, uh, we care for it when it's sick. And at this point, it, it can't help us anymore. There's nothing it can do. It's not that death is coming from outside, it's coming from inside. We're in the process of shedding that body. At that point, then what is there? What is there? And of course, now we get to all the great spiritual traditions. I don't know them as well as I know uh, the Buddhist teaching. Certainly, the Catholic tradition is, uh, uh, has great respect for those last moments, those period of dying, the Tibetan tradition, as you know. But it's in all the Buddhist teachings. What is said here is the only thing that you can count on, you can't count on anything else. Now, that means our possessions uh, cannot help us. But if we hold on to them, not only can't they help us, but they actually can make us suffer much more. If you are, let's say you haven't finished the last chapter in this great book, this monumental treatise that you're working on. I'm talking about myself. Okay. Let's say you haven't. I haven't even started it yet, but you know, it's like. <laughs> but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Problem is, I know it's not as important as doing, you know, what we're talking about. Okay. Um, what's the state of our mind? What's the state of our heart? If we've done a lifetime of practice, uh, we can't be helped by our possessions. We can't be helped by the people who love us. I mean, to some degree, I'm sure. But it's absolutely essential to let go. If we don't let go, we'll be tormented. And it's very, very important to die at peace with ourselves, to die at peace with those people in our lives, to have conflicts worked out, resolved to die, uh, reviewing our life, when it becomes time to die, it would be nice if when we review our life, we feel that we've lived in a way that we approve of, that we've lived with at least some kindness, some wisdom, some compassion, that our life has uh, meant something to us and to others, even in a very, very small way. Now, I'd like to get to, just touch on a little point. It's a very big subject. It's what I feel um, personally strongest about. A long time ago, one of the first teachers that a number of us has was was, uh, Anagarika Munindra. Some of you may remember him, a teacher from India. And this must have been, however old IMS is, it was in the er very early days. That's how many years ago it was. And I remember we talked about death and Menindra said, um, you know, uh, at the time of death, it's too late 
to uh, decide that you want to be awake, to die wakefully. Uh, if you haven't trained to get your mind in a state, in other words, if you haven't practiced, you won't be able to. You'll be pulled away by all kinds of things, probably. So he said, the best way to take care of, of your death is now, is to do this practice, just this ordinary practice. It's not even contemplating death, it's just contemplating the breath, doing the walking, etc. And here's the part that I find great beauty in and great strength in. You know, uh, I don't know how much confidence you have in rebirth. And now there's some wonderfully convincing books. A very Many of you have read the new book by Stelgio Rinpoche on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetans, more than anyone I know, have charted what happens. You know, the different uh, states that one, that one goes through at, after death. And in one sense, that's quite reassuring. That means, boy, someone knows where we're going. You know, and the Bardo states, the in-between, and uh, the possibilities for uh, all kinds of skillful uh, practices that can help us uh, enhance where our next life is. Now, maybe that's true. Let's, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. You know, I, I grew, the first part of my life was spent with very scientifically inclined people who just thought, look, it's all nonsense. At the time of death, your body goes into the ground and that's it, curtains. All the rest of it is just our childishness. We're just afraid of the fact that we, we're, it's over. Or communists, Marxists, same. Those are, those are very strong influences. Uh, the religious people were discredited in my life when I was growing up. We just all of those old people from Russia and Poland. They don't know what they're talking about. And then now, for the last quite a few years, there's all this rebirth and this and that. Now, I, when I think of the Tibetans that I've spent time with, they have total confidence that there's definitely rebirth. As much confidence as the Marxists had that there totally isn't any rebirth. And I put them together and I say, boy, why don't you two get together? You're both totally confident. We're definitely going to die and that's it. Oh, we're definitely going to die, but it's not it. I hope the Tibetans are right, frankly. <laughs> but here's my point. <clears throat> Tibetan Buddhism has it all charted out, and I think that could be very, very helpful if, if there is some place that we go. Personally, I, I feel there is. And I've had some uh, perceptions and intuitions from my practice. But still, um, someone asked a, a Zen master once, uh, what happens when you die? And he said, I don't know. And he said, you don't know? You're a great Zen master. And he said, yes, but, I ha- but I'm not a dead one. <laughs> okay. 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 Now, maybe you feel great confidence in rebirth. In Harvard Square, everyone believes in reincarnation. <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, you probably were in your past lifetime and now you're going to be and you were. And everyone was high-ranking. I was in the court of uh, Julius Caesar. And I was, uh, you know, no one cleaned out the bathroom somehow. You know. And now it's, it's mostly humorous, but it's now become part of our, oh, of course, and it's just part of being sophisticated and modern to Obviously, there's more to go than this. And those dopey people who, who are stuck in science and Marxism, who think we just go into the ground. Um, but, you know, if you get really, try to get really honest with yourself, do you have total confidence? Do you, really? Do you know what's next? Or is it really, when you get honest, a complete mystery as to what happens when this body dies? Okay, let's assume that the, the Tibetans are correct. And there are all these stages. I mean, all the Buddhists are saying it's not over, so they're not unique. But supposing you don't learn the stages, you know what I have the most confidence in for any of this is the practice of awareness. That shouldn't surprise you. You know, uh, when the time comes to die, in principle, it's not any different than what's going on on this retreat. It's just that the field of objects that you'll be, that'll be the subject of your meditation or the theme of your meditation will be very different. It will be whatever death is. Something happening to the body, to the breath, to the mind. The challenge will be the same. Can we stay clear? Uh, can we stay clear in a moving field 
where the power is so immense for us to be pulled off course. Now, probably everyone or almost everyone in this room has lost it at some point during the retreat, right? Some of you are just... No, they don't lie. No one loves me. No, they... You know, and then it passes. Oh, no, no, I'm love. I'm okay. You know, like, you know. Okay. Right. Narayan and I, we have to listen to all of that. <laughs> I don't mean to be callous, you know. Because I put in my own time, you know, doing the same things. I'm, I'm laughing at myself as well. At that point, it's as if you never meditated, you never read anything about it. It's just, you know, you're, you don't know. It's the same thing. It's just as if you're four years old, you know, and someone took my lollipop away. And, and it's just as painful and just as real. Okay, now can you imagine death would be even more of a challenge? So, clearly, it's always the same thing that's concerned. It's, the, it's that we're working with awareness, awareness, awareness. Can you see why that is so precious? Why, in, a, in one sense, the entire journey is that, is this endless refinement of awareness. Is that a hint? <laughs> okay. Just a few more very... Here's why I feel so strongly about this. And I got it from Manindra. Uh, It's wonderful, wonderful teaching. Is that no matter what happens to you in life, all of us, it's not just death. Anything that happens, your best friend is this awareness. We can't control what's going to happen to us. It's impossible. Life is uncertain. Whether we're talking about death or anything else, it's uncertain. Now, doesn't it make sense that the degree to which we have some steadiness of mind, clarity of mind, if the mind could be trained so that it's unwavering, and that's what this training is about, the mind can be trained so that it is more stable than anything that comes in front of it. That it's more stable than anything that comes in front of it. Here's the mind, and no matter what, what comes in front of it, it's unwavering. Now, what if we had a mind that was even moving in that direction, a little bit like that? Whatever it is that we face, I don't know. The great mystery, whatever it is we face, at least uh, it's workable. We, we're in a position where there's something, some way in which we can relate that's meaningful. I find that very comforting. Krishnamurti a few times said that uh, death must be an extraordinary experience. You know, he spoke about it as well. I haven't done this one yet in terms of putting the practice into practice during those moments.
the contemplations on death are not a message of despondency to be forlorn, but rather a message of putting our priorities in order and to wake up to this wonder that we all have of being alive. And that there is available to us something which for short is called the Dharma. And that this is a message of an immense potential and fruit and fruition. And so that's what, why we do the death awareness. That's why we'll do it in a small way tomorrow morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.